Thomas is kind enough, we'll sing the other three verses at the end of the service. All right, so every once in a while, folks, we have a special uh, guest, and they're all stellar, to uh, bring us the word, and Thomas is bringing us the word this morning. So extend your hand, we will pray for him. Father, we thank you for your servant. We thank you for all the work that you've done to prepare him this week and in his entire lifetime. So we ask that the word would become rich within him and would flow out like living waters, transforming mm-hmm. him and us in the process. For your sake, amen. Amen. Good. Thank you, David. Taylor. All right. Um, good morning. My name is Thomas. and uh, That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we are in the middle of a series on the life of David. And it's my privilege to be preaching this morning out of 2 Samuel, verse 6. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to it. We'll also have the overheads. We're going to stand up and read in a moment. Uh, but I'm going, to, I'm going to be talking also out of some psalms. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to have it handy. Because there are some pretty interesting psalms that you can go find that are reflections on or retellings of portions of the story that we'll be studying this morning. And uh, they were written either by David or by uh, people that uh, came after David, kind of reflecting on this. And there's things we can learn about the motivations of David's heart, about what he was thinking, about what happened from those psalms. So as well as uh, 2 Samuel will be in the psalms this morning. Um, Let me pray to start out. Father, I I come before you and uh, ask for the grace from heaven for us who are gathered here to set our hearts to pursue your presence. This is not an easy thing to do day by day, and uh, it takes years to work out. And so I'm praying right now, For you, upon your mercy seat, would you give us grace? Send us on, just as we sent the turkey team out, would you send us on the journey of the pursuit of the presence of God that we are looking at this morning? And I ask this in the name and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Good. So I'm going to talk about uh, setting your heart to pursue the presence of God. And uh, we can see in the story that is in 2 Samuel 6, it's really a climactic story from the life of David that I, I'm, I feel quite honored to be able to preach on this, because in many ways I feel like there's a building up of David's life to this moment. And for uh, me to be able to bring this message to you is a great privilege. And so uh, my assumption is that the, what happened in 2 Samuel chapter 6, where David goes and gets the ark, of the covenant, and brings it back to the capital that he's established, Jerusalem, my assumption is that this story didn't begin at the beginning of 2 Samuel 6, but that in fact David had purposed this in his heart long before, um, that in the years in the wilderness that we've been, we've been uh, kind of learning about in the weeks past, as he was hiding in caves and, and knew that he was going to be anointed king, but didn't stretch out his hand against Saul, that all the time he had this hidden purpose in his heart. He was thinking, when I become king, I'm going after the ark. When I I ascend to the throne, I'm going to go get the ark and bring it to my capital city. When I have the ability, I set my heart right now to pursue God's presence and to not take no for an answer. My assumption is that this was what David did, and my encouragement is this is what we are called to do this morning, to set our hearts, to pursue the presence of God, and to not take no for an answer, and to realize that this is a multi-year, it's a long-term commitment and process, and so to not be discouraged uh, at the the little uh, obstacles we encounter day by day and the difficulties we have in our life and the, and, the, and the woundings and failures and struggles that we have as human beings as we pursue God, to not be discouraged by that, but to have an overarching commitment in our lives to pursue God's presence until we found it. Paul says uh, in Philippians, he says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, 
I press on to take hold of that for which God has taken hold of me. So what I want to do is encourage you this morning that, that, that you can do this. You can have that same heart of Paul. You can have that same heart of David. You can awaken within yourself the resolve and the commitment to press in after God's presence. Now, this is a difficult subject in certain ways and somewhat mysterious because uh, all of us, I think, have experienced times when we've tried to press into God and we've tried to pursue Him and it's, it uh, hasn't worked out quite the way we've expected or it's been difficult. So I want to talk a little bit just briefly about that journey and the process of the journey and encourage you that as I'm speaking, there's hope for housewives whose main task during the day is changing diapers. There's hope for working husbands who, who uh, most of their day is spent kind of going to work and earning wages for their family. There's hope for children. Uh, there's hope for those who are weak and, weak and broken and wounded. Uh, all of us have been given by Christ if we've come and said yes to him and become a follower of Jesus. All of us have been given the ability, regardless of our circumstances, to press in. And it's not a... It's not an ignoring of our circumstances. It's in the midst of that. So a little bit about my spiritual journey. Um, back in the early 90s, I grew up really in Hope Chapel. I met my wife, Amy, at youth group here uh, back in 1984. And that was a wonderful... I still remember the, the first youth meeting that Amy was there. And uh, it took us a while to start dating and become married in 1990. But uh, now we have... My son Noah and Peggy Joe are here as well, and I love them greatly, so I just want to point out my beautiful family. <laughs> and much of, uh, much of whatever is good in this, in this teaching can be attributed certainly to the Holy Spirit, but also Amy uh, you know, kind of told me things to say and to stay away from, so <laughs> I appreciate that. She has a real gift of wisdom, and, and it, if it wasn't very good, it's because I didn't take her advice. But uh, early in the 1990s, or maybe in the middle, there was something that started happening in, in really our lives as a couple. And I can't really describe, describe it except to say our hearts began to be awakened to the pursuit of God after us. And to the fact that, that God intimately knew us, loved us, and uh, wanted to be with us. And this took, took many different shapes and and experiences, and it, uh, and it happened over a period of several years, and it, they were a wonderful several years. Um, just a couple of quick examples. It's, it's pretty amazing stuff. We would have the same dream in the same night. So we'd wake up and like, here's what I dreamed, and I'd find out Amy had the same dream. And that can't be explained. You know, so you can't explain that any other way than to say, somehow God knew both of us, and in our sleep he gave us the same dream, and it's a beautiful statement of his knowledge of us, his purpose of us, the fact that he knows us intimately and wanted to communicate something. Um, there were times when, when uh, there would just be a sense of the presence of God, and we would, we would just be filled with that. And he would speak to us in, in special ways out of scriptures or through people uh, that we knew, and it was always in our own language. It was like things that only we could somehow understand or get. And he was saying to us, I know you intimately. I'm pursuing you. I can speak to you in your language. And so that was a wonderful time. And one of the places of real uh, resource for us became uh, the Metro Christian Fellowship Church in Kansas City. Uh, because they, were, they, they just had conferences and they would, they would uh, speak to us about some of these experiences. You know, how do you interpret dreams? Things like that. And it became just a place where we went for resource, for resources to learn how to how to uh, walk in this in a greater way. And one time I was up there, and uh, the pastor of the church, Mike Bickle, was speaking, and he said something that really caught my attention. He was talking about a life given to prayer. And he said, you're going to do something with the next 10 years of your life. You're going to do something. You're going to wake up 10 years from now, and you will have done something with those 10 years. Why not give yourself to prayer? Why not give yourself to seeking God? Why not take the next 10 years and try it out? See what it's like to just focus on pursuing God and, and reading scriptures, prayer, fasting, pressing in. Focus on that and see what happens. And it made sense to me. Somehow, somehow that, 
And it's like, oh, yeah, it clicked in my mind. And I said, I'm going to do that. I'll give myself for the next 10 years. I'll set my heart to press in and pursue God. And that was almost exactly 10 years ago. And so I look back now, and I bless God for that moment. And I say the journey has been so much worthwhile. And it's been filled with, uh, it hasn't been at all what I expected. There's been so many twists and turns along the way that I never could have predicted at that moment. But they never would have happened if I hadn't set my heart that day and pressed in. And if I had known what I was saying yes to, I might have, uh, have been a little bit more tentative. Because there's also been times of, of deep pain and of disappointment and of, of wounding where I have wounded people who are close to me in the midst of that pursuit of God. And so if I had seen those in advance, I doubt I would have said yes or I might have had more hesitancy. But I did say yes, and, I, and I'm glad I did because even in those moments of wounding and working through difficult times where I hurt another person, uh, on the other side of that, there's been a much greater strength in that relationship. And those are some of the best times as I look back on them. And so I just want to encourage you as I speak this morning, uh, don't disqualify yourself in any way from pressing in and pursuing the presence of God. Don't disqualify yourself out of fear of what might happen. Uh, Dan Davis uh, said something that stuck with me several years ago. Anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. Get that? Anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. It means if it's worth doing, go for it. Go for it. Do it as best you can, and if you mess up, get up and keep going. And this is what we see in the life of David today in the passage we're going to be in today. So that's a little bit of an introduction. I, want to, uh, I just want to throw that out there and have you uh, hopefully see that what I'm talking about is a multi-year process. It's something that uh, works its way out in things that are unexpected and sometimes painful, but that it's what you were made to do. And there's a, there's a beautiful partnership that happens. Um, the setting of the heart that I'm going to speak about is an act of the will. It's an act of your will to say, I'm going to do something. We, we, we'll see in the passage today, David said, I made a vow to not let sleep come to my eyes until I brought the ark to Jerusalem. He said, I'm going to do it. He set his will. But there's a working with your will of the will of God and a response of that. In many ways, my setting my heart those 10 years ago was a response to what God had already been doing for, for several years of pursuing me and wooing me and Amy. And so, and so there's a beautiful working together of your will with God's. Um, but it takes your will. That's my message today. It takes your will. It takes you saying, I'm going to do it. I'm going to set out. And when you do, God will add all of his energy, all of his power, because he wants it more than you do. And so you can, you can know that if you set your will and pursue God, uh, he will give you strength for the journey, and he'll take you places that you didn't expect, uh, and you'll be glad for it. So let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1 through 5. Stand with me, and let's read this together. The word of God. David, again brought together out of Israel, chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Kiriath-Jerim to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the Ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs, with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and symbols. Good. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. But don't, don't get too comfortable because we're going to stand again in a while and read some more. Okay, so this is where we're starting. David again brought out of Israel chosen men. They set out to bring from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty. So there's a little bit, we have to back up a little bit to really understand this passage. First question is, what is this ark? 
What is the ark? Well, what you need to know about it is told in this verse. It says right at the end of that sentence in the first paragraph, called by the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim who are upon the ark. Get that. The Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. This is the presence of God. It's, it's the, the presence of God for Israel. He dwelt at the, at the top of the ark in between the cherubim. And this is a very mysterious thing. Uh, God dwelling on top of a box. You think, what? Why would God choose a box to dwell on? That's a good question. In Exodus 25, there's this instruction given to Moses. You shall make a mercy seat of gold, pure gold, one cherub at one end, the other cherub at the other. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with the wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be towards the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you will put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony. So God chose to take this place on the top of the ark that's a, actually a picture of the throne of God in Revelation that John describes, and even that is a vague representation. He said, I I can't really describe what it's like to have this this throne in heaven and one sitting on the throne and there's light coming out. He shines, this one upon the throne and there's a rainbow, an emerald rainbow that surrounds him. And I'm looking and and it kind of looks like there's these living creatures, these things with wings and they're flying and they're encircling the throne. And not only do they have wings, they have eyes all over their wings and all over their bodies. And as they circle the throne, they call out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This is what John saw and tried to write down as best he could. And this is what is represented physically on the top of the ark. You have the seat, the mercy seat, the throne. The seat that God sits on is a seat of mercy. Isn't that good news? It's a seat of mercy, his throne, which is a sign of power in the earth, and it's a sign of power in heaven, is also by his own name, the mercy seat. It's the place he offers mercy to mankind. There's no other religion that can say that. Our God is strong and loving, and his mercy and his strength are not uh, in contradiction in any way. And so there's this mercy seat on the ark, and there's these two cherubim. So imagine if this were it, there's these kind of statues of, of these cherubim, these winged creatures who are covered with eyes. Their eyes are there because they're beholding the beauty of God. They're trying to take God in. And they have to have eyes all over their body because he's so beautiful. He dwells in unapproachable light. And they're trying continually to take in as much as they can and then give him back worship, speak of his holiness, speak of who he is and what he's doing. So these, this, this statue of these beings is on top of the ark. And then it says, between them, above the mercy seat, between the cherubim, there I will meet with you and speak to you. The voice of God coming from the top of a box. And in Numbers 789, it says, when Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, He heard the voice speaking to him from between the two cherubim, above the atonement cover, on the Ark of the Testimony. And Moses spoke with God. So so there's this, this box, and it seems so strange, but I want to read you a passage that will help bring this into context. Uh, This is from a book called The Sober Intoxication of the Spirit. And just the title of this book is enough to get you excited, right? The Sober Intoxication of the Spirit. It's, uh, It's by the the priest who is the priest to the Pope. He's the priest that that speaks the homilies when the Pope uh, uh, goes to Mass. And so this is what he writes about this idea of why would God come and dwell on a box? He says, If humility means abasing oneself out of love, then God is humility because he can do nothing but lower himself. There is nothing above him 
and thus he cannot climb up or lift himself up higher. When he does anything outside of himself, God can only lower himself, humble himself. That is what he has done since the creation of the world. The story of salvation is none other than the story of the successive humble acts of God. Even Pentecost is an act of humility by God. Why else would we speak of the descent of the Holy Spirit? It is because every intervention by God to bless man is a condescension, a humbling of himself. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit humbled himself, taking on lowly signs like fire, wind, and tongues. He humbles himself to dwell in needy creatures of flesh, making them his temples. Why would God decide that the top of a box was a good place for him to dwell? Because he wanted to communicate with men. Why would God take your life and decide that you're a good place to dwell? Why would he pick you, your physical body, your your history, your emotions, and say, there I will make my dwelling place? Because he wants to communicate with you. He wants his presence His presence to be known to you. And this is real. The presence of God is real. We focus on uh, maybe things in the the place of worship that that give us uh, a sense of God's presence, like the the feelings that we have as we raise our hands or the the words that are spoken to us in our minds as we worship. Uh, Those are good things. But the presence of God is, is a real thing that is incredibly powerful. And I think we need a higher vision of what the presence of God is so that we're emboldened to pursue it with great courage. In the Old Testament, we, we see that, that for Moses, the presence of God left him with a glowing face. His, his face. his face literally glowed. For Isaiah, when he experienced God, He was left with this reverent fear and awe. He said, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell within a people of unclean lips. He was was undone by the presence of God. We see uh, in the New Testament that there's power on the word of God that comes from being in the presence of God. The story of Zechariah and John Zachariah is in the temple and an angel of the Lord appears to him and says, you will have a son in your old age. His name will be John. Zechariah doesn't believe. He says, how can this be? And the angel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I tell you this will be. And because you haven't believed, you will be struck dumb until the child is born. And it happened. Zechariah didn't speak for nine months. When the child was born, the first thing he said was, his name is John. <laughs> I'll tell you this. I've been waiting nine months to say it. His name is John. It was told to me by an angel who stood in the presence of God. And there was a power on the words that he said that struck me dumb because I didn't believe it. I want to see that kind of power on your life, on our life, on the preachers all through this city that are preaching right now. I want to see power on the gospel that comes because the people that are speaking have been in the presence of God. The presence of God. I lead a, uh, a community that's dedicated to seeing 24-7 prayer established in the city of Austin. It's called the Austin House of Prayer. And, uh, and many members of the community are here this morning and would like to pray for you as a blessing at the end of the service. And we have a little prayer room in East Austin. And... Uh, and I love being in the prayer room. Michael, Michelle, who led worship uh, this morning, and I have had a prayer time on Thursdays from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. for uh, three, almost three and a half years now. We've had this prayer time on Thursdays. And uh, I've just, I love Michael. I love worshiping with him. Uh, and sometime back in April, there was a, an intensity that came upon him, a hunger that came upon him that I could sense, a longing for the presence of God. And a few weeks after that, uh, we had an experience, I had an experience of the presence of God in that prayer room. And I just offer it to you as one small example of what happens when you encounter the presence of God. And we were praying, and we were co- kind of pouring our hearts out, and all of a sudden I was arrested and stopped. 
and I, and I could feel the presence of God around me, something around me. It was different. It was different than it usually was. And I heard a voice just almost whisper in my mind or say, your prayers have been heard in heaven. Very simple phrase. And it stunned me. I mean, it sounds simple, right? Your prayers have been heard in heaven. But it was not at all simple. It was profound. And I felt opened up and transparent. And I, and I saw the way in which not only the answer to my prayers is an act of mercy by God, but even the fact that I prayed at all was, it was a response. It was his mercy that caused me to pray. And then by his mercy, he was going to answer the own prayer he put in our hearts. And it was such a, a beautiful thing. I was, I was literally trembling and tender for, for two or three weeks after that. And whenever I would come into uh, a place where I heard a song or, or was with people, I would just start crying. And so the presence of God is a real thing. It can really touch. It can change the way you are. It's worth going after. A man would give his life for a moment like that. A person, there are people in this world that are pursuing and they would give their lives. They would give as much money as they have, whatever they could have, to have a moment like I had in the prayer room. And so I don't treat it lightly, but it's out there. God wants to be with us more than we want to be with him. And so, uh, and so the presence of God is a good thing. However, our situation, our condition, is such that we typically neglect the presence of God. Let me say that again. Our, our my and your condition is typically our most common state is that we're neglecting to pursue the presence of God. And it's interesting because uh, in Psalm 60, 78, if you, if you back up and, and see what brought this moment about, the ark here is, is in Kiriath-Jerim, right? That's where they go and get it. It's in Kiriath-Jerim. And it got there by a very circuitous journey. And, uh, and essentially the Philistines came and they captured the ark and they took it back to their land. And from Israel's point of view, the ark has been lost. The glory of God departed from Israel. Well, God's point of view is told in Psalm 78. And he says, it says there, God abandoned the tabernacle in Shiloh. He sent the ark of his might into captivity, his splendor into the hands of his enemy. So from God's perspective, the ark didn't get captured. He decided to send it out into the land of Philistine. And, uh, and when he's not wanted, as he wasn't, the ark was not sought after in that time, he will withdraw himself. He'll he'll. He'll encourage you to pursue him by withdrawing from you. And sometimes you can be frustrated and say, ah, you know, what's the deal? I cannot feel God. I don't, I don't know his presence. And it could be that he's withdrawn a little bit and is encouraging you, come after me. Come on. You can do it. Have the heart of David. Get up. Go. So he withdraws, just as Jesus often withdrew. When he was on the earth, he would withdraw, but crowds would come and follow him. And the, the people that came, the crowds that pressed in and followed after him, he would then speak to them. And so there's a certain pressing after the presence of God that God invites by withdrawing from you. It's an unusual dynamic. And, uh, and there's a verse in Proverbs 25 that says, The glory of God is to conceal a matter. The glory of a king is to search it out. The glory of God is to conceal a matter. It's the glory of a king to search it out. So there's a certain glory that you have inside of yourself. You are a king and a priest made by Jesus. And part of your glory, part of what he made you to do, is to go search him out. When he hides, go search him out. And you'll never reach the end of that. You can never go to the depths, the end of the depths of God. And so it's a a glorious freedom that we have as believers. Once we enter into salvation, we have a glorious freedom to be able to pursue and press into God as much as we want. How far do you want to go? How much is your desire? In Israel, the desire was not high. We see four signs of that. Here are the signs. These are from 1 Samuel 4-7. through I'm not going to read it, but I'll tell you what happened. First, the sons of Eli were in a battle with the Philistines. In this battle, they were losing, and so they said, I know what to do. Let's go get the ark, because in the past, whenever the ark was brought out in a battle, the enemies were all vanquished, and Israel was triumphant. Now, 
Now, the sons of Eli were not good guys. They did not have a heart after God's temple or presence. And so they went and got the ark, they brought it out, and the battle went disastrously. The Philistines won, they were slain, and the ark was taken into the land of of the Philistines. So this is the first sign of neglect of the presence of God. It's when God becomes your last resort. Instead of your first pursuit, he's your last resort. Oh, things aren't going well. Let's see, uh, you know, let's go get the ark. Maybe we can win the battle that way. Second, here's what happened. The, the, the news from the battle came back, and Eli, their father, was sitting down, and he heard that the ark had been captured. He was dismayed and fell backwards, and his neck was broken. They said, the glory of God has departed, and, and they mourned. But no one got up to go after it. So there's a, a hardened heart, a, a cynicism, a giving up, a fainting heart, detached criticism, you know, standing back and saying, oh, this is a bad thing, but not doing anything about it that came upon uh, the nation of Israel. So that's the second thing. You can look, you know, are you bored? Are you living a bored life? Are you cynical? Do you have kind of, is it easier for you to just kind of be detached and make comments about other people and other things and then to actually enter in and invest and go for it? Do you have kind of a fatalistic attitude like, oh, it's gonna, whatever's going to happen is going to happen? That's, that's the way they were in Israel at this time. The third sign is a fainting heart, which is to give up when God shows up in unexpected ways. So here's what happened. The Philistines were not bored with the ark. The ark came into their land, and they put it in their temple, right? They captured this ark. They put it in their temple and, uh, as a gift to their god, Dagon. They come back the next morning, and they find that Dagon has fallen down and is prostrate in front of the ark of the covenant and is broken into pieces. And they're like, wow, we're dealing with something that's real. It's powerful. We didn't realize that. And so they say, what are we going to do with it? And they take the ark, and they start sending it to city after city in their land. And every city they send it to, Plagues break out and things start happening. And finally they decide, they decide, we don't know what to do with this. This is the real, this is a real God. We're going to send him back to Israel. And so they put the ark on a cart and they pointed the oxen off and they're like, giddy up. <laughs> you go back. And the oxen took the cart back to Israel. And, uh, and uh, when it came over the hill, the Israelites rejoiced. Like, yeah, our ark came back. And, uh, and they... Uh, they had a party, they had a celebration, a worship service, and then some guys decided, I'm gonna, we're gonna, let's look in it and see what's in the ark. And they touched the ark to open it up. And the power of God broke out and many of them died because there are strict restrictions in the, uh, in the books of the law about touching the ark. You should not do that. You should not lightly touch the presence of the Most High God. And when, they, when this happened, when they had people that died because of the ark, they said, we're not, they kind of took a step back, we're not messing with this anymore. You know, they gave it to this, they put it in Kiriath Jerem. They set a guy aside to just be the caretaker. And they said, we're, we're not going to deal with God. He's a little bit dangerous. We didn't expect what happened. And so they had a fainting heart. When God appeared in a way they did not expect, that was, that, was, uh, that was actually somewhat disastrous, they didn't say, let's find out why and, and continue to press into God. They said, hands off, we're stepping back. So a fainting heart, the third sign of neglect for the presence of God. The fourth one, the ark stayed at Kiriath-Jerim, and that's where it was during the time of Saul. So as Saul was doing all of his battles, as we've learned about, you know, the things that he did as king, the whole time the ark was in Kiriath-Jerim. Saul's political capital was not there. Saul stayed in Gilgal, uh, his hometown. And so there was a separation of the political capital of Israel and the presence of God, the center of worship. And this is the fourth sign of neglect of the presence of God is when the, the presence of God is not central in your life. When he's not at the center. David had it in his heart. I'm going to go get the ark and put it in the center. I'm going to put it right in the middle of my capital. It's going to be in the center. There's going to be worship and prayer. It's the, the presence of God is going to be what fuels everything that happens in the kingdom. With Saul, it was separate. And so you can see that by looking at a map for those days how do you see that, that sign of the neglect of the presence of God for ourselves today? Well, I'll tell you. Your map is your checkbook, your calendar, 
and your daydreams. Those three things. Look at your checkbook. Look at your calendar. And look at what you dream about when you just, just let your mind wander. And that will tell you what the center of your life is about. It will tell you where your thoughts, your affections, your resources are centered. And so this is a way you can look at your own life. I can look at my own life and challenge myself and say, am I neglecting the presence of God? If I was to hand my checkbook to someone else and say, say, take a look, see what you think about how I'm spending my money. Take a look at my calendar. Have I made room for, for the presence of God? What would they say? What would they say? Are the two things separate in your life, the political capital and the center of worship? So this is our condition, typically. I can look at myself and say it's my condition. And there's really two fundamental issues here. The two things that lie at the, at the heart of neglect of God's presence are two lies about God. One is that he's not strong. He's not real. He doesn't really exist. It, that, that it doesn't really matter. My life is more real than God's presence. And so you don't pursue him because you don't really think he's strong or powerful or real or can make a difference. And this is, I think, the state in many ways, of our nation. The second one is that he's not loving. You can believe that God's strong and powerful and real like the Philistines, but have no clue that he's a God of love. They sent him out. I mean, think about it. God was in the land of the Philistines. You know, would he have not loved it if they had welcomed him and asked him, what do we do? You know, can we become your people too? He would have said yes, but instead they said, you know, we're afraid of this. Let's send it away. And so the, the two things that are behind Neglect of God's presence are an unbelief that God is strong and powerful and real and an unbelief that he's loving. And it's interesting that at the end of Psalm 62, David says, two things have I heard of the Lord. One, that he is strong. Two, that he is loving. David understood these two things. Okay? So what did David do? Pursuit of the presence of God. 2 Samuel 6. We've kind of walked through the background behind this verse, and we can now understand what's happening. David went out. He and all of his men set out from, set out from, uh, from Kiriath-Jerim to bring up from there the Ark of the Lord. So he got up in Jerusalem. He got 30,000 men together, and they went down to Kiriath-Jerim where the Ark had been. There had been 100 years, really, that the Ark had been in this wandering path. And he said, I'm going to go get it. He went out and, uh, and, went out and got it. And so, uh, and so this, is, this is what it means to set your heart. This is what the result of setting your heart is, is real action. It always, it always will end up in, in you doing something real and something specific and something tangible that makes a difference in the world and that other people can see and recognize. You can set your heart to pursue the presence of God, and if, it, and if you're just sitting there and kind of waiting for that to happen, it won't happen. There'll be things that the Lord will give to you to do. When, uh, when 10 years ago, you know, I kind of set my heart, uh, I didn't expect to be uh, seeking to establish 24-7 prayer in the city of Austin. That was not on my radar screen at all. But there was a, there was a, a moment where it became clear that that was the direction that if I was going to pursue God, the presence of God, he was inviting me to do that. And so, and so we've set ourselves in very specific ways to do that, we've, set, we've got a place. You know, we, we've got a place that we pay, pl- pay rent that's a real place, and people can really come and, 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 and pray there. And so there's physical, real things that you will always be called to do in pursuing the presence of God. So in 2 Samuel 6.1, David went out. I want to encourage you that every concrete step you take like this, every real thing you do towards God, every small movement is worth celebrating. They celebrated with all their might in 2 in, uh, Samuel 6, 5. They, they celebrated because they were bringing the ark back. They're, they're making a movement to bring the presence of God and make it central in the, in the land of Israel. And so they celebrated it. Celebrate. When you, when you take a step, when you take a movement towards God, when you do something real, when you give money to Hope Chapel, when you, when you give time to prayer, celebrate it. Be excited. This is what you were made to do. And it's a great victory. Every small step, everything you do towards God is a huge victory. Every, there's a, there's a, a verse I love in Hebrews, chapter 8, verse 6, where God says, you can, 
You can charge me with injustice, injustice if I don't remember even the smallest thing that you've done out of love for me. Even the littlest thing. I can tell you there's things that y'all have done this morning, even just coming here, that God says, ah, he writes it in his book. You've made a movement. You've come. You've pressed in. You've pursued me. And he remembers it, and he'll never forget it. So celebrate those types of things. Uh, one one uh, other thing that setting your heart means is committing your treasure. This was a very expensive trip, 30,000 men. David calls up the whole army and says, okay, I'm going to go get the ark. He's already defeated the Philistines, so I don't think there's a huge fear of military you know, kind of backlash. But he calls up 30,000 men and says, let's go get the ark together. Let's go get it together. He committed resources to pursuing the presence of God. Lastly, <laughs> setting, setting your heart to pursue God means one more thing. So it means taking real action. It means committing some real resources. And it means expecting and encountering real difficulties. Let's see what uh, happens with David. Stand up. Let's read together. Verses 6 through 11. All right. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. The word of the Lord. Have a seat. So this is a little bit of an unexpected twist, right? And it's kind of dark. It's uh, not expected, perhaps, that David would set his heart, pursue the presence of God, and in the midst of this mountaintop experience where they're all celebrating what they're doing, somebody reaches out because the oxen stumble, the ark starts to tip. He reaches out to stabilize it and is struck dead. He falls dead. And I can just see the whole assembly. Whoa, we thought we knew what we were about here. We thought God would be pleased with us for coming and and doing this thing of bringing the presence of God and putting it in the, the center of the capital of Jerusalem. And now there's a death. How do you deal with that type of obstacle of disaster when you set your heart to pursue God and something like this happens. Well, David, uh, David deal with it differently than the people uh, who sent the ark to Kiriath-Jerim. If you remember, they touched the ark as well. And the presence of God broke out and many of them died. And they said, whoa, we're not dealing with this anymore. We'll send it off to Kiriath-Jerim and leave it alone. David didn't do that. He didn't, he didn't take no for an answer. David did not take no for an answer. He set his heart to pursue the presence of God, and he wasn't going to be uh, swayed by the difficulty of that, of that journey. He did not take no for an answer. Proverbs 24, 16, I love this proverb. It says, grab onto this today. The righteous man falls seven times, but the ungodly falls once. Why is that? Why would the righteous fall more times? Because they keep getting up. When they fall down, they keep getting up. When they fall down, they keep getting up. They're not going to be swayed. Their hearts are set. When they fall down, when they fail, when they stumble in weakness, they get up again, and they have a heart that says, I'm not finished. I'm going to keep going. There's a, a, a water business we started as part of the House of Prayer community. Uh, day and night waters that makes this this uh, this water called Cielo, and we started the business in 2004, 
and we had a certain amount of startup capital. We started the business. Things were going pretty well. We were in Whole Foods. And in March, we realized that we were at the end of the money we had to start the business. And the revenues from the business were not sufficient to cover the cost of what it took for us to run the operation. And so I called a meeting of the founders of the business to explain this. We met at Mi Madre's, which is a great Mexican food restaurant in East Austin. If you hear nothing else today, hear that Mi Madre's <laughs> is a great Mexican food restaurant in East Austin. And we're sitting at the table, and, uh, and I explained to the, the, the three people with me, you know, we're basically, we're finished. We've got to close up shop. This is March 2005. And uh, one person said, yeah, you know, I've got to go earn money to pay my mortgage. And another person was off in, in another direction. And Felipe Adams, who's not here this morning because he's in California with a group at the Perspectives Missions course, Felipe looked at me and he said, Thomas, I'm not done yet. And it, was, it stunned me. I'm, I, 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 uh, I can feel the emotional impact of him saying that right now. I said, what? He said, I'm not done yet. This isn't over. I'm not finished. And I said, you should be. <laughs> Young man, go get yourself a real job, you know? And he looked at me and said, no, I'm not done yet. And so I gave him a couple weeks. I said, okay, we can guarantee you that you won't be paid. We don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> but if you're still willing and you go talk to your dad and you're still willing after that, I'll say yes to that. And so he went and talked to his father. His father said, go get a real job. And, uh, and he said, no, I'm not done. I want to pursue this. And he came back, and he kept going. And the water business is still operational. We're still growing. We're still at the point where, where, uh, <laughs> where it'll take a miracle to, 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 to keep it moving. But moments like that, it's, it's just unceasing, right? And it's the righteous man falls seven times. It's not going to stop. But there is a glory. I think there's a corresponding glory upon glory it happens every time you get up, as it says in, uh, I think it's 2 Corinthians, that we, we, are, we are ever unveiled faces. We're ever seeing the presence of God, and with glory upon glory, we're growing. And so uh, that moment where Felipe said, I'm not done yet, I want to encourage you, say that. Say that to God when you're in the midst of difficulty, when things don't go as you expect, when there's hurt and wounding, still say before the Lord, say to yourself, I'm not done yet. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to take no for an answer. I'm going to press in. A good example of that is Peter in the New Testament, who failed pretty uh, remarkably, right? I mean, he tells Jesus, I'll never betray you. And, and 24 hours later, he's betrayed him three times. And Peter didn't give up. Jesus restored him. There's mercy. There's the ability in the midst of failure for God to give you the grace to get up and keep going. And especially when you're pursuing His purposes, when you're pursuing His presence, He wants you to succeed more than, than you want to succeed. But He'll also honor the height of your desire by testing it. He'll give you difficulty according to how much you press into Him. And, uh, and so it's, it's, sometimes it's a little bit daunting to say, uh, I want you more, God. He'll say, all right. You want me more? <laughs> how, did, how did David respond? This is really good. Setting your heart means running to God, not from Him, when you fall down. The tendency when we fail, when we stumble, when our weaknesses... I mean, David's failure in leadership is completely evident in front of 30,000 people, right? He's, he's been exposed. He didn't prepare right. You should not transport the ark on a cart. In spite of the fact the Philistines did it, they didn't know any better. David should have known better, and it was a failure in leadership that caused Uzzah to die. It's worth noting, by the way, as we talk about the death of Uzzah, the Lord does not look at death the same way we do. Be encouraged that for us, death is the ultimate enemy, but it's not that way for the Lord. So when you come across these examples of people dying in the presence of God, and you think, what? What's this about? Be encouraged. There's something greater going on here than we would typically see. So I think Tommy McIntosh is going to talk about that next week. Uh, so I encourage you to come next week and hear Tommy address that question, because it's an important one. But uh, what's da David's response? 
when this, this terrible thing happens, he recognizes it's his fault. In Psalm 30, he actually not only recognizes it's his fault, but he recognizes that it could have been him. He reflects on it and thinks, I could have been the one that stretched out my hand. I was dancing right there too. And he says this in Psalm 30, which is the psalm he wrote at the dedication of the temple, at the dedication of the tent of meeting. It's the psalm he wrote about bringing the ark in. He says, O oh Lord, you, you brought me up from the grave and spared me from going down to the pit. Sing to the Lord, you saints of his. Praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. So the first thing that David did was he was angry at God. Notice that? David was angry. He said, well, I'm leaving the ark right here. I'm angry. I'm trying to do a good thing for you, God. I want a place for your name. And this is what happens to me? And he goes back to Jerusalem. It's okay to be angry at God. It's okay. God can take it. I want to encourage you, if you've ever heard or, or been, been told, don't, you know, don't be angry at God. I will encourage you, you can be angry at God. You can speak to him your mind. He's not going to be knocked off his throne by what you have to say. He really isn't. He, can, he, will, he will hear you and respond. And so David, I love it because he's this emotional guy. He's angry at God. And he says, I'm going back to Jerusalem. Second thing, soberness. Psalm 30 shows this. He began to think about what had happened. First of all, he realized that it could have been him. Wow. It was my friend Uzzah. It could have been me. Something serious happened here that I need to take seriously. The next thing he did, he remembered what God is like. He began to call to mind. In Psalm 18, which was written well before this, as he's in the wilderness, he says, God, you rescued me because you delighted in me. David's aware of God's delight in him. And he recalls that to mind and says, that hasn't changed. The fact that I did, did something wrong has not changed the fact that God is delighted in me. His anger lasts for a moment. His anger burned for a moment on that day. But his favor lasts for an entire lifetime. So he called to mind the fact that God's character hasn't changed, that he still delights in him. Then he studied what God had commanded, how to carry the ark. You carry it with poles, people, the Levites, a certain class of Levites carry the ark. You don't put it on a cart. It's like, oh, I get it. And then he observes what God does next. So let's stand together and read what happens next. The last time you'll have to pop up and down like a uh, jack-in-the-box. 2 Samuel 6, 11 through 15. Read with me. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark, Lord, had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Amen. There it is. The ark is brought into Jerusalem and is now the center And David's already prepared a place for it with singers that he's instructed to sing back and forth and declare the praises of God. Night and day they go. He's got whole hundreds of them that are instructed and set apart. Once the ark arrives to to praise and worship the Lord and it becomes the center of Jerusalem during his reign on the throne. So faced with failure, what does he do? He doesn't give up. He goes back. He he went... He... uh, where is it? He went down and brought up the ark. He does it again. He studies what happened. He studies the character of God. He knows that he's set his heart. He's made a vow that he won't sleep until it's brought in. So he doesn't give up. He says, I'm going after it again. And I love this. Six steps, right? Six steps. Why, why the six steps? Well, put yourself in their shoes. What happened the last time you tried to move the ark? Huh? Bam! You still have that echo in your mind. This is just three months later. 
So they're like, okay, you know, let's get the ark. We think we know how to move it this time. Okay. One. <laughs> Two. And they go on. And they hit six steps and they realize, we're going to be able to do this. The anger of the Lord is not breaking out against us. We got it right this time. And so they celebrate. They kill a, kill a cow. They have a party. They celebrate and they bring the ark in. Isn't that beautiful? I love it. He goes back. He gets up. He, he learns what his mistake was. Gets up and goes again. Setting your heart means getting up and trying again. And he finishes. What he has set his heart to do, he finishes. And he brings the ark into Jerusalem. Psalm 30, continuing. This is the psalm David wrote about this event. He says, To you, O Lord, I called. To the Lord I cried for mercy. What gain is there for you in my destruction? In my going down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my help. Then then David writes, You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth that I was wearing because of the death of my friend, Uzzah, and clothed me with joy, that my heart may sing to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give you thanks forever. So David was very focused on the glory of God. He said, when faced with the problem, he didn't even kind of say, although I set my heart to do this, he said, what gain is there for you, Lord, if if the ark stays where we're leaving it in the house of Obed-Edom? Remember your purposes. Remember the glory of your name. Have mercy on me and help me. And then his, his response afterwards is, the Lord turned my mourning into dancing. He took my sackcloth, the grief that I had in my heart because of what had transpired, and he clothed me with joy. So I want you to rise to your feet. Let's respond to what the Lord is saying. Michael, you want to come up? Here's my encouragement, is that there's probably some among you who have a desire that's risen up in your heart, as I've been speaking, by the Holy Spirit, to set your heart upon pursuing the presence of God. You've realized, maybe, maybe for the first time, that you have a role to play in pressing into God. That He's waiting for you to make the move to, to draw you further. He's going to add His energy to what you're doing But he's not going to do it unless you step out and take a risk. And so there's a question in your heart of, can I I do this? What are the implications? What would it mean if I took this step that is in my mind right now that I think maybe, God, you're calling me to take? And I I want you to come up for prayer for courage to do that. I want to encourage you, set your heart to pursue the presence of God. Don't focus on the implications or the possibilities of what might happen. You cannot predict those things. I will tell you that the path that you go on will be far different and much better than you could have ever expected. So take that first step this morning, like David did in the wilderness. Set your heart. Say, I will go. I will not allow sleep to come to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I've made a place for your name in my own heart, in my own family, in my own community, in my church. There's probably others of you that have done that in the past. And it's been a little bit like David's path, where something disastrous happened that you didn't expect. You may have withdrawn. Your heart may be a little harder now than it was back then. You had a tender heart. You said, I'm going to pursue you, God. I want to give my life to you. I I want to go to the missions field. I want to go to Turkey. And something happened that you didn't expect in that process, and you've withdrawn, and you've hardened yourself a little bit. He said, I'm not going there again. I want to encourage you to come forward for prayer because the Lord wants you to get up and press on and move forward with the, with, the, with the vow that he has given you in your heart to pursue. And like David, you can get up, you can go forward, you can continue moving. So if members of the AHOP community will come forward just around here.
Robbie, good, Jack and Kara and Linda, Jolene, excellent. My wife, Amy. We are here to pray for you. We want to bless Hope Chapel. These are young men and women, older men and women, who pray for the church in Austin. It's our privilege and our delight to labor in prayer week after week in a silent place for you guys. And now it's our delight to pray for you face to face and in person. And so I want to encourage you, just come forward. If the Lord's moving on your heart, just pick somebody and ask them to pray for you. Pray for, pray for the courage to take that first step or pray for the courage to get up again and keep going. can also speak out where you are as you stand there you can just speak to God I encourage you turn your heart to him as David made the ark the center of worship in Jerusalem make Jesus the center Set your heart to make Him the center, regardless of what it takes. Don't be afraid. All heaven is waiting for you to say yes, to take this step. The Lord has resources to send you and help for you that you know not of. Don't be afraid. standing there saying to seek you out to search you I will set my heart Some of you need to go seek out your children and pursue them. I release you to do this. Go out and, and rescue the, uh, the child care workers. Go get your children. But I, I say you can stay as long as you want to. We'll continue to worship and pray. So don't go without getting prayed for if this is on your heart. You are dismissed. The blessing of God be upon you. Dwell richly, come be the center, God. I will set my heart. We set our hearts right now, Lord, to seek to you, seek you in the morning, to search God, for you, to search you out upon my and We will bed. give our eyes I no rest. Will give my eyes no rest till you find a place. Lord, 
out upon my bed and I will give my eyes no rest until they find a home for you until you are exalted God so my life I've been searching for a home but I was always meant to be a home I was always meant to be a home for for you to dwell and find rest in my Find rest in my heart. I will set my heart to seek you. To seek you in the morning, God, to search you out upon my bed, I will give my eyes no rest until I find a home for you, until you are exhausted, God. Consume me with a passion for your 